We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. Hi, everybody. It's really a great pleasure to be here today. Today, I'm going to talk about a very small portion of our work that has to do with providing an evolutionary perspective on human cognitive and behavioral variation. So, of course, the major framing of this is that the brain is the most important organ you have, according to the brain. And again, this tongue in cheek slide really speaks to the importance of the brain in making us human, who we are. We're probably the only organism on Earth um, whose brain would come up with this little slogan. Before I get into the outline of the talk, I just want to frame and make a few really key points that underlie, you could call them themes. Human cognition and behavior are part of normal human variation so-called human condition. But the same thing with disorders, such as neuropsychiatric disorders and autism spectrum conditions that impact these human phenotypes or human conditions, part of normal human variation. We know that most aspects of human cognition, behavior, and brain structure are highly heritable as well. And although they're subject to major environmental effects, genetics really provides us with an anchor of understanding the mechanisms of development and function of the brain. And advances in understanding the genetic contributions to the neuropsychiatric diseases now permit us to begin to understand how risk for these disorders relates to other human phenotypes and human brain evolution. So what I'm going to touch on today, and I'll summarize right here, the human brain, specifically regions of the neocortex, have expanded substantially relative to what would be expected based on body size. This reflects changes in cell number, morphology, as well as composition. So I'm gonna ask and answer two questions to some degree. Can we leverage comparative genomics, that is comparing different species, to understand the genes and mechanisms behind these evolutionary changes? And secondly, is normal variation in human brain function, and by extension, risk for neuropsychiatric disorders, a consequence of factors that underlie distinctly human adaptations 
in cognition and behavior. So one of the first things to know is that human variability in cognition and behavior is related to expansion of the neocortex. And in fact, specific highly interconnected regions in the frontal, temporal, and parietal lobes. This is from a paper in 2013, and the orange regions are the most highly variable regions. And they're in the frontal lobe in the front, and the temporal lobe, parietal lobe, and one can see the sensory motor cortex being the least variable. So individual variation in cortical network connectivity, this is showing how these brain regions connect to each other, underlies cognitive and behavioral variability. Things like personality traits, cognition, language, executive function, anxiety, etc. And what's interesting is that these same regions are those that have expanded the most on the human lineage. That is, the our variability comes from the expansion of these regions. And this is just shown here quantitatively. You can see that inner subject variability in network activity and connectivity is related to its evolutionary surface cortical expansion. So the most variable brain regions, the frontal temporal parietal association regions in humans, are those that have also expanded the most on the human lineage. This is a tongue-in-cheek title of a review that I wrote with one of my mentors, Pashko Rakic, now almost a decade ago. Cortical evolution judged the brain by its cover. In other words, again, the cerebral cortex being the seat of uh, a lot, not all, of human uh, brain adaptations related to our unique aspects of language, cognition, and behavior. And there are a lot of phenotypes associated with that. And I just list some of them here. Again, this is about a decade ago. You can see on the left that many of these quantitative differences are actually related to the development of the brain, the length of the cell cycle, cortical neurogenesis, because the neurons in the brain, and the brain is essentially built early on, all the cells are born prenatally. And another piece is that there's very prolonged development, both in utero and ex utero, after birth, we have, we have profoundly longer childhood and adolescence. And in fact, the mechanism for some of this is beginning to be understood. And here's a nice little diagram of how some of cortical expansion has actually occurred and related to cell cycle and cell divisions. And this is just showing rodent, non-human, primate, and human from um, my colleague, Jenna Konopka. And it shows the expansion of the green cells, which is called the subventricular zone. And actually this region of progenitors expands hugely in primates, even more so in humans than non-human primates, and gives rise to the later born projection neurons in the upper layers of the cortex, layers two and three, and, and uh, to some extent in visual cortex as well, the expanded layer four as well. And these cells are involved primarily in cortical-cortical connectivity in most brain regions, that is connecting the hemispheres uh, to each other and, and different cortical regions to each other. So we have this expansion of these cortical regions. We have some notion of beginning of how they develop and that the origins are likely at least partially developmental. How do we kind of connect them to genetics? So DNA sequence or structural chromosomal differences provide a key foundation for understanding primate evolution. Phenotype differences between the species are thought to reflect significant differences in the regulation of gene expression and not necessarily the structure 
of genes themselves, in other words, the proteins. And this was uh, initially described in a very influential paper in Science in 1975, King and Wilson. Evolution at two levels in humans and chimpanzees, the two levels being that the macromolecules have some changes, but that most of the changes are occurring in gene regulation. However, definitively connecting DNA changes to brain function is challenged by showing that variants actually affect the brain. In other words, you have the DNA, you can see all this genetic variation. How do you know which ones are actually affecting the brain and how do you show that they are indeed doing that? And so we and others have done a lot of work for the last 20 years and, and, and kind of read, I want to kind of rethink the evolution at two levels, kind of riffing off that wonderful um, and, and, and seminal paper, that expansion of higher order cortical circuitry, that is the connectivity of these brain regions that have expanded, underlies human cognitive specialization, higher order association areas, that is things involved in language, planning, frontal executive function, and their connections. But it's not only just the expansion, it's within these regions, we and others have found evidence for increased cellular and molecular complexity. That is the cells are larger, the dendritic trees are bigger, and molecularly, the networks and pathways involved are much more complex. So both brain region circuits and the cellular and molecular complexity within frontal lobe have adaptively evolved in humans. So again, this is a wonderful uh, picture from more than a decade ago from my colleague, Katrina Semendeferi, one of the organizers of this symposium. And I just show this to show the massive difference in the, in the spacing between cells. So it's not just that there are more cells and more connections. Their, their architecture is just fundamentally different. The dendritic trees of, of uh, projection neurons in humans is larger, et cetera. So we have these molecular differences as well as the, these connectivity differences. The network is just bigger as well, in addition to its components being more complex. So how do we get there? Development is a process that involves genes interacting with the environment, leading to a cerebral structure. This is not a static structure, it's a dynamic structure. It involves multiple levels from molecular all the way to gross anatomy. And this underlies behavior and cognition which also feeds back, changing the cerebral structure as we learn and age and grow, et cetera. And so understanding development is really essential to understanding um, cerebral structure. Another point I want to bring up is that broad risk, genetic risk for psychiatric disorders preferentially impacts this period of fetal development. This is just another piece of evidence that this period is extremely important for behavior and cognition in humans as well as creating susceptibility in these areas that are so important. Here's some work with the eyesight group that we did. Basically, instead of treating autism and schizophrenia as different disorders, we take all the six major disorders from ADHD, affective disorder, anorexia, bipolar, schizophrenia, autism. And if you have any one of those, you're affected. And we find multiple genome-wide significant loci affecting susceptibility for all of, for mental illness in general. And we look to see when this is expressed, you can see the brain expression of these genes is much higher prenatally than postnatally. In fact, peaking around mid-gestation, the peak 
of cortical neurogenesis and migration. And in a later paper that's much larger with the uh, psychiatric GWAS consortium, essentially we see the same thing. So how do we go from genomic variant to gene? How do we go from changes in the genome to understanding what their actually impact is? And here we rely on functional genomic annotations, such as from the um, understanding what these non-coding regions of the brain of the genome are. So 95% of the genome is non-coding, only about 4% codes for proteins. So most of what's going on is in regulatory sequence that's driving the expression, splicing, timing. And this biology is driven by gene regulation that occurs at the cell type and tissue level. So we can't have a generic view of this. We have to study the actual tissue of interest. And so the problem is with the brain, and especially the human fetal brain, 10 years ago, there was really no map connecting genetic variation through these epigenetic annotations to understand what was functional during fetal human brain development, what these, and, and, and what genes these functional elements were actually um, um, interacting with and, and regulating. And I just put up this title, No Maps for These Territories, because it's a, it's a movie that my uh, wife and I um, helped make with the director, Mark Neal, with William Gibson now quite a long time ago. And its title was No Maps for These Territories. And you may know that William Gibson is a science fiction writer who coined the term cyberspace and is really a visionary in science fiction. And so I kind of use this as, a, as our mantra, no maps for these territories, we have to make them. And the folks listed below, when they were postdocs in the lab, and they're all now out running their own labs, uh, basically built this map. So we wanted to generate a reference map of gene regulation during human neurogenesis based on dynamic chromatin accessibility and structure. The whole idea is to figure out what all this non-coding region was doing and what's really critical for brain development. So what genes are expressed, what regions of the genome are active, what genes do they regulate, and how do they regulate them? And so when we find regions that are active during fetal brain, we can then take disorders um, in which genome-wide association studies have been done, or any human phenotype, like brain volume, intracranial volume at the bottom, or educational attainment, how far in school you've gone, as well as disorders like autism, schizophrenia, depressive symptoms, Alzheimer's, et cetera. And what we see is that even for some adult disorders or later onset disorders, such as depression, there's a substantial impact of the genetic variation that predisposes for these, dis for these conditions or these phenotypes, sits preferentially, is enriched in regions that are active during fetal brain development, especially the case for educational attainment, neuroticism, depression, of course, intracranial volume, because that's how the brain is, cells are actually born. And actually, when we look um, with, um, with Jason Stein, who was a postdoc in the lab, but this is done in his lab at UNC Chapel Hill, we can actually see that when we look at chromatin expression quantitative trait loci, just saying regions that are, that are changing during fetal brain development, especially in these neural progenitors, the things that give rise to the neurons in the brain, massively enriched for a wide range of uh, human traits, ranging from IQ and educational attainment to autism and neuroticism. So what aspects 
of this genetic and epigenetic regulation during fetal brain development have developed on the human lineage. So I'm gonna focus on two obvious kind of low-hanging fruit. One of them is genetic. They're called human accelerated regions or HARs. These are regions that are strongly conserved across mammals and vertebrates, but, but in humans have changed more than any other lineage. So they've, their changing has accelerated on the human lineage. So they're functional, but changing a lot. Then on the epigenetic side, there are things called enhancers that turn genes on. And these are another form of regulatory element. Now the HARs strongly overlap with known developmental enhancers, but a human gained enhancer is something that's more active on the human lineage. It's an enhancer that might be there in mouse and in chimpanzee and in macaque, but it's much more active in human brain. And so we can look both and compare HARs and identify what they overlap with in human fetal brain. We can look at human gained enhancers that are gained in fetal brain. We can also look at those human gained enhancers and what, whether they're active in adult brain. And so the genes that are regulated by HARs and HGE are expressed most in this cell type called ORG right here and a little bit in endothelial cells as well. But the ORG, that is the region I showed you before that is responsible for the expansion of the cortex in primates and in humans. That's the subventricular zone. And so here we're connecting the actual biological mechanism of expansion of the cortex, this expansion of the outer radioglia in the subventricular zone with a human adapted genetic cat, you know, category, let's say these HARs and HGEs. So we're able to kind of connect these and they're both impacting the same way. So the notion is that these HARs and HGEs are kind of responsible in driving this kind of expansion of the cortex. And again, now we can look later in development if it's the case that these HARs and HGEs are driving the expansion of the layers two and three, which are, which are the regions that have massively expanded in humans, then we expect them to be enriched. And indeed they are, we can see that HARs and the fetal brain, HGEs especially, are enriched. So elements that are being selected on the human lineage converge on cerebral cortical expansion and gyrification, which is the expansion of these layers two, three. So how does this relate to susceptibility for human disorders? Is this related to any aspect of cognitive function? And in fact, human gained enhancers regulate genes that are related to human intellectual function as well. And this is shown here in this paper that was led by Hei Jung Wan when she was a postdoc in my laboratory. The idea here is we use chromatin interactions to identify the regulatory relationships. And we find using this technique called Hi-C that genes that are connected to these human gained enhancers shown on the left. So this is a, you can see the peak here, which shows the activity of the enhancer in fetal human brain compared to rhesus or mouse. That would be a gained enhancer where there's a huge difference. 
So if we take those and connect them to genes using this chromatin interaction data, we see that now if we take genes that are defined using this chromatin interaction, that those that are enriched in the germinal zone and cortical plate of the developing cerebral cortex are, are enriched with a curated list of genes that cause intellectual development. In fact, if we just take those in fetal brain together, we see this huge, highly significant enrichment. And if we just didn't use the high C, if we didn't connect the regulatory regions to their proper genes and just let them sit near their closest genes, we don't see anything. And this includes genes that are known to be a cause of small brain. This is just one example here. And what I'm showing in the neck here is these TADs, which are regions in which 95% of regulatory interactions occur. Then above it is the negative log TAD and p-value of the chromatin conformation contact. So this big peak is showing that this evolutionary gained enhancer, this HGE, is acting on this gene, RGAP11B. Well, RGAP11B arose from a duplication of this other RGAP form on the human lineage and is purported to promote progenitor self-renewal. So this is one of the probably many mechanisms by which these human-gained elements are regulating, adapt, in this case, a gene that's actually been adapted on the human lineage to actually expand the cortex. Now, Chris Walsh's lab showed around the same time, looking at HARS, not HGEs, that HARS, these human accelerated regions are enriched in mutations that cause autism spectrum disorders in a quite remarkable paper published in Cell. So to kind of tie things up, we can ask, now that we have been studying autism for two decades using modern genetics, when and where do genes that impact social cognition and mental flexibility and language that cause autism actually lie? And they, we've shown in several papers, as have others, that these genes that are mutated in autism act during fetal brain development, and they impact the pathways of transcriptional regulation, that is, things that turn genes on and off, as well as synaptic development, but during, during fetal life. Secondarily, when we look to see what cells these genes are expressed in, they're primarily expressed in the superficial, supergranular layers from layer two to three and a little bit in layer four. So then it's not surprising that both classes of these human adapted elements, active in fetal brain, regulate cortical expansion and constrain genes that give rise that when they're mutated, increase risk for autism as well as developmental delay and intellectual disability. And that's shown here. These HARS, human-gained enhancers in fetal brain, you can see this enrichment in genes that show strong constraint on the human lineage that are depleted of mutations in humans, those that cause de novo loss of function. And again, this is another measure of constraint. So it suggests that changes in regulatory sequence is one mode of sequence evolution that allows highly constrained developmental genes to kind of change their expression and be involved in cortical expansion. So in summary, 
genes related to the expansion of the human cerebral cortex are under control of human-specific DNA regulatory elements. These have most impact on expansion of cortical regions that underlie human cognitive and behavioral variability. And these same human regulatory regions also impact intellectual function and risk for neurodevelopmental disorders, including ASD and schizophrenia, which like other human disorders are on a continuum with a range of human trait variation. The notion is that part of, the, part of our gain and part of what's evolved to make us human also can be a source of human variability and in some ways vulnerability. I'm really grateful to Carta for inviting me and giving me this opportunity and to those in my lab who are listed here, whose work I've talked about as we've gone through, especially Hei Jung Wan, Jason Stein, and Luis de la Torre and Rebecca Walker, who did the majority of this work, as well as our funders. Thank you very much for your attention.